We're in a series right now called Find Your Voice. The series is aiming at helping us to grow in our ability to discuss current topics with grace and with truth. Now, I've said each week that this is a humble admission that we're not doing as well as we could be doing. I'm not doing as well as I could be doing at discussing these topics. And so we are learning right now how we can do better. All of these messages are found online on our app and on our website. We've already covered uh, Islam and terrorism, God and government, pro-life, pro-choice and abortion. Now we're talking about LGBT issues. And if this is your first Sunday coming, which I'd be surprised if it is given the weather, but you never know, you might be thinking, wow, does this church always talk about only controversial things? (laughs) The answer is no, but we are going there together so that we can find our voice. So we're on part two now of learning how to discuss LGBT issues with grace and with truth. Part one last week was an introduction. We traced the history of the gay rights movement. You have to find that sermon online and listen to it if you weren't here last week. It will give you your bearings. How did we get here as a culture? And, uh, and what are the basics? What are the basics on how we can interact um, on, this, on this issue? Today is going to be a very truthful message. We're going to ask ourselves, uh, what does the Bible have to say about homosexuality and what is the church's responsibility given that truth? Um, Now, then we're going to take a break on this topic for a few weeks because of Christmas. When we come back to it, there will be a very grace-filled message about how do we share our convictions with compassion and and how do we make tough decisions in real life that involve families and, and, and a workplace and a classroom. So um, we'll learn how to apply that. Then there will be a final message in this series where we talk about what happens if if my rights are are, uh, in jeopardy or when it comes to sexual liberty versus religious liberty, or if government gets involved. We're going to go there and we'll talk about that the last week. Today, though, it's a very simple question. What does the Bible say? What are our convictions on this topic? I really want to um, talk to two types of people in particular today. First of all, I want to talk to anybody who is a Christian and you are trying to ask yourself, is it possible, is it possible that someone could be a gay Christian? Is it, is it possible that in the Bible there is an allowance or a permission or a blessing for a Christian who is involved in the gay lifestyle? Maybe you're wondering that. Maybe you're wondering if the Bible allows for that. And today I'd like to talk with you about that. I'd also like to talk with somebody who is not a Christian and you don't know Christ and you don't like what you know about Christ and you don't like what you know about Christians. I'd really like to have the opportunity to clear things up for you by sharing what the Bible actually says and what Christians should actually believe and how we should actually behave. There are no doubt people in this room who have a variety of opinions on this topic. I thank you for giving me a hearing. Uh, And there are people who listen to these sermons online for years to come. So there could be someone uh, listening to this sermon online. I don't know you. I've never met you. And yet, I thank you for giving me your time. And here we are. What does the Bible say about this? Let me give you... I wish I had time to trace how homosexuality has impacted the church. And I could spend a whole hour talking through the church history on this issue and denominational struggles with it. But let me just give you a few bullet points uh, or um, an overview. The gay rights movement, which began in the late 60s, immediately found allies within the church from the beginning. 
Um, probably the most famous ally from the beginning was a pastor by the name of Troy Perry. We've got a picture of him. In 1968, Troy Perry, who, uh, he was a pastor, and he was uh, let go. He was fired from being a pastor because it was found out that he was a homosexual, uh, and he was practicing. So after he was fired, um, he, his lover broke up with him, and he attempted suicide. It was a very traumatic time in his life. Uh, after he recovered from that, a woman told him, um, you will be a pastor again. And he laughed. She said, God has a ministry for you. He considers that now a word of prophecy as he founded the largest pro-gay denomination. It's called MCC. They now have 300 churches in 22 countries with 43,000 members. Um, he would represent a radical viewpoint on this topic. He would represent a church and a denomination that opens the doors wide and places no restrictions on the behavior of the people who come to his church. They have no real doctrinal statement, no real biblical convictions. It's simply an open door, come as you are, live how you like. Um, he uh, endorses and their church embraces many forms of sexual expression. Um, and, uh, and they basically call some of what, what would be seen as more indecent actions on the part of grown-ups, they would call those evidence of spiritual maturity and um, some of the things that he believes, I can't even say in a church context because uh, it is shameful, but the things that would be most shameful if I were to say them out loud, he would call them spiritual maturity, and he would even say they are better than therapy for the soul. Now, I want you to know that there are big movements of churches like this that open the doors wide and say, come as you are, do whatever you want, and we will not tell you anything you're doing is wrong. But that doesn't represent all churches who open their doors up widely without any questions of doctrine or morality. There are others like Matthew Vines, we have a picture of him, Matthew Vines, who represents a group of uh, Christians aiming to preserve a conservative view of the Bible and endorse what they would consider a pure form of homosexuality, um, perhaps honoring some traditional boundaries like waiting until marriage, building a family, remaining monogamous, Matthew Vines had a YouTube video that went viral, uh, and this is an excerpt from one of his books. He says this, Within the traditional interpretation of Scripture, falling in love is one of the worst things that could happen to a gay person, because you will necessarily be heartbroken. You will have to run away, and that will happen every single time that you come to care about someone else too much. So while you watch your friends fall in love, get married, and start families, you will always be left out. You will never share in those joys yourself of a spouse and of children of your own. You will always be alone. Matthew Vines represents um, Christians who grew up in the church, know the Bible, and, and are trying to, trying to live out a Christian form of the homosexual lifestyle by bringing some of their Christian values into that lifestyle. Um, in doing so, they are trying to completely revise uh, what Christians have believed about many things in the Bible um, since the beginning. And so they have their work cut out for them. Those, those two represent the extremes of churches and Christians who are trying to say, um, can I, can anyone be a gay Christian? Joe Dallas wrote a book called The Gay Gospel. Um, I think we have it available at our bookstore. If not, you can order it. Uh, this is a great read. Joe Dallas actually attended Troy Perry's church for several years. Uh, Joe what makes Joe Dallas unique is he also was a minister who lost his job uh, when it was found out that he was a practicing homosexual. He had a seminary degree. He knows the Bible as well or better than anybody in this room, including myself. 
And yet he couldn't reconcile his biblical knowledge with his strong feelings of attraction for men that he experienced from a very young age. He didn't know what to do with that. Uh, So what did he do? He decided to explore. Can I be a gay Christian? Can I keep my faith and live out um, and live out my, my love interests and find somebody, a companion. So he started attending Troy Perry's church, and he loved what he heard right away. In fact, in his book, let me read to you just a, an excerpt of what he said, because I want you to hear his experience and his struggle. I remember clearly and with expressible regret the day I convinced myself it was acceptable to be both gay and Christian. It was the fall of 1978, and the local metropolitan community church was opening its morning service just as I slipped into a seat near the back. Um, He says, homosexuality was not foreign to me. Unbeknownst to my friends and associates, I'd privately wrestled with it since childhood. In fact, by the time I converted to Christianity at age 16, I'd had numerous sexual experiences with both men and women. I'd assumed that having come to Christ, my sexual desires would either vanish or somehow conform to biblical standards. That didn't happen. So here he is in this church in 1978. He says, I wanted to see if it was possible to be actively homosexual, Christian, and confident of a right standing before God. I knew the scriptural condemnations of homosexuality in both the Old Testament and the New. He said, I spotted a worship book in the pew, opening it up. I was delighted to find many of the solidly evangelical hymns and choruses I'd sung years ago. With songs like these, I reasoned, this must be a Christ-centered church. He goes on to say, I felt now, sitting in this church, that I could forgive myself. I thought I could forgive myself and move in a new direction with a new identity. Gay Christian. It was oddly liberating to put the two words together. Homosexual, but sexually responsible. Not promiscuous, a God-fearing, church-going gay man with a cause to combat homophobia and the oppression of all gay people. The idea thrilled me to have a cause again. Something to live for, something to fight for. He records how he stood up to take communion that morning and froze in the aisle because he didn't know if he really could do what he was about to do. And yet he went forward, took communion. He began participating in that church for six or seven years, counseling people, teaching Sunday school classes. We'll come back to his story in a while. Is it possible to live that out? Let's pray right now before we go any further, and then we'll look at the Bible verses on this topic. Father in heaven, thank you that your word speaks to our heart deeply down into our hearts, to the things that matter most to us, to the thoughts and the feelings that we cherish and treasure. Thank you, Lord, that you look down into our hearts and speak to our souls. Open our eyes to see what your word says and help us, O Lord, to form convictions based on your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, you can open up to the book of Genesis. That's where we'll go first. First, we'll track through some verses in the Old Testament, then the New. Let me say this as we begin. We believe in the authority of the Bible. Uh, What you do with God's word will determine where you get your morals. We believe that this book is God's moral law, and we are accountable to listen to it. It has authority over us. We are not free to tell it what to say or to change what it does say. We practice the historical, literal, grammatical, interpretive method of the Bible, which means the original authors had something to say. It's easy to figure out what they were saying and embedded in those uh, in those um, truths that hit the first audience are truths that transcend time, and uh, we therefore can know God's law. We can know what the authors meant. We don't have to sit around in a circle scratching our heads asking, well, what, what did they mean? It doesn't make any sense. Uh, therefore, we find principles in the Bible that apply to all people at all times in all cultures. 
The biggest question you have to ask before we go any further is, who is the moral authority in your life? You have to answer that. Who is the moral authority in your life? Is it yourself? Is it yourself? Because if you say, well, that's just your opinion, what you're really saying is that your opinion is the moral authority in your life. Is it your community, the people around you who tell you their opinions? Or is it God? We believe God is the moral authority in your life. Therefore, we open his word to find out what he has to say on the matter. Well, in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 27, we find the very beginning uh, of everything. Creation of man, of woman. It says in chapter 1, verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, over the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. What do we see here? You can write this down. God created gender distinctions to reflect his will and his nature. Uh, gender comes from God. It was his design. It was his intention. What we learn there is your gender is God-given. It's something that he designed. It's something he chose. Uh, therefore, that part of you is sacred. It's as sacred as your race, which you did not choose. God gives you certain components that he wills, and he has a purpose assigned to that component. And when you look into the Bible, you find out why he made you that way and what attachments, what expectations he has um, for that part of you. God created gender distinctions to reflect his will and his nature. He created man and woman to complement each other. Just as God would be a community, three in one, bound up in love, uh, father, son, and spirit, so he created man and woman to be one together. And that together they show God's nature as well, not just individually, but also together. So it serves a divine purpose and it reflects a divine being. It's God-given and sacred. Men and women are different, very different. And it's because God made it that way. Uh, it goes on to say in chapter 2, verses 23 to 25, flip ahead to chapter 2, God brought Eve to Adam and said, Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. They shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. We see here, you can write this down, God's design for sex and intimacy from the beginning is one man, one woman, married for life. God's design for sex and intimacy is one man, one woman, married for life. Um, government didn't create marriage. Culture didn't create marriage. They didn't sit around thinking up this new idea in the medieval days. God made marriage from the beginning with Adam and Eve, and his will from the beginning was one man and one woman would come together, and they would stay together for life, and there they would feel no shame. They, they would be uh, shameless. They would, they would be filled with that intimacy together. This is the scriptural ideal held up in the Old and the New Testament. And therefore, any deviation from this is frowned on in scripture and called sin. Uh, this is important to understand. All sex outside of marriage is forbidden by God and leads to suffering and judgment. The Bible goes on to say that we fell into sin in the garden. Adam and Eve sinned. And because of that, uh, they, their relationship to God was broken and polluted. Sin affected everything in the garden. Uh, and man, mind, body, and soul was fallen. Fallen in his thinking, fallen in his feelings, and yes, fallen in his sexuality. 
they, man would now find um, conflicting desires inside, thoughts inside that betray the God who made him. Um, and there is a war, the Bible says, there is a war in your heart. The passions of this world war against your soul. There's a fight. When you look inside yourself and wonder, in any situation, in any moral dilemma, why do I desire to do the wrong thing? It's because we are fallen beings. And that fall marks us in every way, in our speech, in our thoughts, in our heart, and in our sexuality. All right, so that lays the groundwork for who man is, who God is, and, and what the fall set us up for. Now, very early in the Bible, you can turn to Genesis chapter 19, we see the extent of the fall and God's judgment falling on people. Uh, it says in Genesis 19, what was happening is Abraham's nephew Lot was in a city filled with sin. God was about to judge that city. Uh, Abraham said, no, 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 don't do it, don't do it. What if there's one righteous man left? And God said, yeah, if there's even one righteous man left, then hey, I won't judge the city. God sends two angels to check the city out. Uh, he's giving this city a fair trial. He sends two angels in male bodies to check out the city of Sodom. And uh, it says in chapter 19, verse 4, what happened? But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. They called to Lot. Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Now that's a very clear reference to wanting to rape these men sexually. Uh, and the men of the city, all of them, it says, gathered around the house, and uh, they asked for these two men, these two men who came to their city as visitors, who they had no idea were actually angels, deciding whether or not the city should be judged, um, and they, they demanded that they be brought out so that they would have their way with them. Now, there is a traditional view of this judgment. Uh, you can write this down. The traditional view of what God did to Sodom is this. God judged Sodom for their many sins featuring homosexuality. That's the traditional view. Now, in the late 60s and the 70s, um, there, there was a problem because there were now gay pastors, there were gay theologians who were living out the lifestyle or who knew people that were, and they only had the traditional views to go on. So they started rethinking these verses in the Bible and reinterpreting them. It's a very, very new method of interpretation, uh, and it is clearly biased because these folks were already living out the lifestyle before they looked into the Bible to find justification for it. Okay. So, how do they now reinterpret this? Well, first, let me share with you Jude chapter 1, verse 7. We'll put it up on the screen. In the New Testament, it says this, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Uh, the traditional view is that the sexual sins of the city, including other sins, led to the judgment. Here's the revisionist view. Um, Gay theologians and pastors would say this. Well, God judged Sodom for rape and inhospitality. Rape and inhospitality. Meaning the homosexual behavior wasn't the problem. It was, it was a particular form of that action that was a problem. Rape. And uh, even if it was heterosexual rape, that, that would be the problem. And they were, they were not hospitable. There was a high value placed on hospitality in the Old Testament. And because they didn't welcome the guests, that's why God poured out his judgment. Now, what they're trying to do here is they're trying to say... Uh, the Bible says sexual sin. They're trying to narrow it down to one form of sexual sin, uh, meaning, meaning rape or gang rape. You know, and that's, what, that's what God was really judging. Or hospitality. Um, there's a problem with that view. The problem is there's no reason in the Bible to narrow the form of homosexuality that is being judged in Sodom. The Bible gives us no 
reason to think that it's one form of this activity. In fact, in the context, the, the fact that all the men of the city showed up to partake of this showed that they were all involved in this behavior. Um, so we have to be careful because we don't find in the Bible that it was lack of hospitality, and we don't find that it was rape, and we don't find that there was any form of homosexual conduct that was uh, exempt from this judgment. Therefore, what they are doing is it's pure speculation. Nothing in the Bible supports what they're saying. They are speculating that there is a form of homosexual activity that wouldn't have been judged. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible simply says there was sexual sin, it was homosexual in nature, and God judged it. And he judged it severely. Listen, you have to understand, folks, how terrible the wrath of God really is. He rained fire down from heaven and destroyed every man, woman, and child in this city. He burned it to the ground. It's like he tipped a volcano open over in heaven and he poured out fire on the city. This shows us how God feels about what was being done in Sodom. Yes, it's not only the homosexual behavior that made God furious. There were other sins in the city. But we have no reason to take that out of the reason God judged the city. In fact, sexual sin was one of the main reasons God judged the city. This fury, this wrath towards sin doesn't just fall on people who are engaged in homosexual activity. It falls on anyone engaged in any form of sexual sin. This is how God feels about our sexual sin. It provokes him to wrath. So there's, um, the revisionist view fails to line up with what the Bible teaches in this verse. Um, all right, so that's Genesis 19, 4 to 5. God judged Sodom for their many sins, featuring homosexuality. Let's move on to Leviticus chapter 18, verse 2, uh, verse 22. Leviticus 18, verse 22. What we find in Leviticus now, we've fast-forwarded in biblical history. We're now in the days of Moses. So Moses led the people out of Egypt. There's now, God is actually giving his moral law writing it on tablets of stone, and, and, and uh, he's actually announcing it. And so what do we find in Leviticus 18, verse 22? Well, it says this, You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. So this is as clear as can be. It says a man lying with a man is an abomination in God's sight. Look ahead to chapter 20, verse 13. In chapter 20, verse 13, it says, If a man lies with a male, as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. So this was a capital crime under Moses. Uh, and again, you see a severe penalty attached to this form of behavior. So you can write this down. The traditional view on these verses is homosexual behavior was condemned and punishable by death. You can write that down. Homosexual behavior was condemned and punishable by death. That's a severe punishment. Um, you don't have to turn there because uh, we'll go to another verse soon, but in Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 5, under various laws, it says, A man shall not wear, uh, or a woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord God. So write this down. Cross-dressing was also forbidden under Moses' code. This is God's law and God's punishment. Um, we have to be careful here because what we see is a moral law that still applies today, but does the punishment still apply? Does God still expect people to be put to death for this stuff? Um, no. In fact, I think in the New Testament when we see the woman at the well, or I'm sorry, the woman who was caught in adultery, uh, what did Jesus say to her? Jesus said to her, 
neither do I condemn you. But then what did he say? Go and sin no more. Meaning, neither do I condemn you yet. Go and sin no more. So the penalties of the Old Testament are not carried over into the New Testament, uh, but the moral laws still apply. The revisionist view is this. You can write this down. Those who revised the Bible to accommodate homosexual behavior would say, well, the Bible condemns homosexuality if it is attached to pagan temples, meaning it's it's the association with pagan idolatry that made that form of homosexual behavior wrong. While there are verses in the Old Testament that forbid idolatry and that correlate idolatry and homosexual practices, um, that is not the context in the verses that I just read. The context in the verses that I just read have nothing to do with pagan idolatry, and the conduct, the homosexual behavior, is, is uh, isolated from all other things, and it is condemned in and of itself. Not condemned for its association with idolatry, simply condemned because of what it is. That is what the Bible teaches. Um, they also would say this, the revisionists would say, well, the Old Testament laws don't apply anymore. You can write that down. The Old Testament rule, they don't apply anymore. Uh, we don't have to follow Old Testament rules, they would say, like avoiding shellfish or mating different animals or mixing different fabrics. And so listen, if, if you don't follow those rules in the Old Testament, who are you to tell me to follow the rules about homosexuality? Either you follow all of them or they all are no longer apply. They're doing a few things with the Bible here that are, it's not right. First of all, they are um, taking things that are often not lumped together and they are combining them. So there were, there were lists of moral laws. There were also lists of ceremonial laws. Uh, and there were also lists of civil laws because um, they were covering many different topics. And so some of these practices had uh, clearly been called out in a category. Um, and so you will find the sin of homosexual, homosexual behavior along other similar things like rape, or incest, or bestiality. And the problem is, if you say, hey, none of those Old Testament laws apply anymore. Well, what about rape? What about bestiality? What about incest? You see, because the moral law was there before Moses said it, and these moral laws were also affirmed in the New Testament. Um, One of the other things they're doing, so they're neglecting that there are moral laws that transcend the law of Moses and still apply today. They're also misunderstanding some of the ceremonial and civil laws that don't apply anymore. In the New Testament, there were times where Jesus would clearly say this ceremonial law, for example, on dietary restrictions, no longer applies. Why? Because he fulfilled it. So if he fulfilled a law and he said that the dietary restrictions no longer apply to Christians, he is the one who said this no longer applies. There were also church councils that would get together as the Gentiles, non-Jews, were getting saved, and they would say, okay, how much much of this whole law applies to them? So we see in the Bible the the thinking through of how much of the Old Testament should be put on Christians in the New. This is an issue that is covered in the Bible. And they put a lot of thought into it, and they sent letters out to the churches to give their findings. Here's the thing. Both Jesus and the early church leaders still condemned sexual immorality in the New Testament. In other words, the moral laws found in the law of Moses pertaining to sexuality were upheld in the new by Jesus and by the early church. So we have a reason to be able to say some of those ceremonial laws like fabric and, you know, eating, diet, those don't apply anymore. 
yet the moral laws that pertain to some sexual activity do, because they're found in Genesis and in Moses, and they're affirmed in the New Testament. So the revisionist view fails to reinterpret Leviticus and Deuteronomy. These are principles that are affirmed in the New and that were affirmed before they came up in Moses. Now that's what the Old Testament says. We walk out of the Old Testament with a clear picture of how God feels about homosexual behavior, what his law is, and what he wants for his people. It's clear, and you have to change the Bible and revise it to get out of what the Bible says. But what about the New? Uh, You can write this down. Number two, what does the New Testament say? What does the New Testament say? We're going to go to Mark chapter 10, verse 6 in the New Testament. Mark chapter 10, verse 6. And what you find in Mark chapter 10 is a discussion between Jesus and the Pharisees about marriage. Um, We find the traditional view here of what Jesus had to say about uh, sex and marriage. So they asked him a question, and in verse 6, it says this, Jesus said, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus upheld the uh, sexual ideal found in Genesis. You can write that down. Sometimes at gay pride events or rallies, there'll be somebody holding up a sign that says, this is what Jesus said about homosexuality, and then it's blank. And their point is, Jesus didn't talk about it, and so therefore it must be okay, because if it was important, he would have addressed it. What we do see, though, is Jesus did talk about sexuality, and he affirmed the ideal standard found in Genesis. One man, one woman, what God has joined together, let man not separate. That is the ideal of Christ spoken from his own lips. Jesus upheld the sexual ideal found in Genesis. And he didn't just target homosexual behavior in his list of what falls short of the standard. He also said that there were only a few reasons that divorce would be allowed uh, for adultery, right? And in the book of 1 Corinthians, it says if a non-believing spouse deserts a believer, then divorce is allowed. Um, So in rare forms, is divorce even permissible in the scripture? The standard of sexuality found in the New Testament affirmed by Christ is holy, and it reflects what's found in Genesis. The disciples said, this is true, who can keep this? They were shocked by just how high the bar was. Here's the revisionist view. The revisionist view is, well, God said nothing about, or Jesus said nothing about homosexuality. How do we respond to that? Well, we would say this. Silence doesn't affirm anything. Silence doesn't affirm anything. Um, Jesus was silent on rape. So if I feel like raping someone and I said, well, Jesus was silent on the matter, does that make it right? Does it? No. Silence doesn't give us permission to do anything. Jesus is silent on incest. Jesus is silent on pedophilia. So if a young person is being taken advantage of, that person who is abusing a child could say, well, Jesus never said anything about this. Therefore, I've got to pass. Jesus never said anything about a lot of things. He never said anything about nuclear warfare. Okay? You can't say silence gives me permission to do anything. Plus, Jesus did say a whole lot about the ideal, and he affirmed the ideal found in Genesis. Okay, let's look ahead to the book of Romans, chapter 1. Book of Romans, chapter 1. What did Paul say? What did the apostles say about uh, homosexuality? 
And then how do people revise this for today? In the book of Romans, chapter 1, verse 24, uh, the Apostle Paul has just talked about the wrath of God being revealed from heaven. He talked about the, the origination of sin. Uh, and in verse 24, he starts to talk about this topic. He says, Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So look here, and what we see is lusts of the heart, God giving them over, meaning turning them away from himself, out of his will, to what? To impurity, dishonoring, exchanging the truth for a lie, worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator. Verse 26, it goes on to say this, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. All right, write this down. Here's the traditional interpretation of this text. The Bible describes homosexual behavior as dishonorable passions, unnatural relations, shameless acts reflecting a debased mind. It's taking you a little bit of time to write all that down, isn't it? Listen to these words. Dishonorable. Unnatural. Shameless. Debased. What will you do with those words? What will you do with those words? According to the traditional view, the passion, the relationship, the actions, and the thoughts are all condemned. The entire experience is condemned. So how do revisionists get around this? Well, you can write this down. The revisionist view is, well, New Testament authors weren't aware of sexual orientation as we now understand it. They were ignorant. Um, right then and there, they undercut the uh, sufficiency of Scripture and even the inspiration because if the New Testament authors don't know, then we believe the book was written by the Holy Spirit. God didn't know. God didn't understand orientation as we see it today. Revisionists would say, well, based on all the sociology and the biology and the research we've done today, we now know that sexual orientation is something you're born with, can't be changed. They didn't know that at that time. And so if they had known that, uh, then, then they wouldn't have said what they said. So what the revisionists are assuming is, if I am born oriented towards a certain behavior that the Bible condemns, I get a free pass. Well, does that work with any other sin? If, I, if I'm born or from a young age, find a predisposition to lying, if I'm oriented toward lying, do I therefore, you know, or, or what about alcoholism? If I'm born and it's a generational thing, my father and my grandfather struggled with it, if I have a propensity to alcoholism, we now know that it's a disease, does that mean that the Bible authors didn't know that, so I can therefore do that? Um, it really doesn't make sense to say, because I'm born with a propensity to do something God forbids, I can do it. That doesn't make sense. That doesn't give me a pass. It doesn't justify how I'm acting. Uh, 
I don't look within myself to my disposition to decide what's right or wrong. I look to God's word and I bend to it accordingly. They would also say this, the revisionists would say, well, what they're really against here is excessive lust. It, it's the excession, it, it's the excessiveness of the lust. It's, you know, it, it's, the, it's a form of homosexual behavior that the Bible condemns. But surely it doesn't condemn a monogamous, loving, Christian relationship where we're raising a family together because that wasn't invented yet. So, so that would have been allowed. What I would say to that is... Um, what the Bible condemns here, if you look through these verses, is not one form of homosexual activity, but all forms of homosexual activity. The scope and the breadth of the words used is a blanket covering everything from the thought to the lust to the act. It's all condemned. The passion, the relationship, the acts, the thoughts are all shameful and against God's will, and you cannot get out of that without changing God's word. So listen, let me talk to you Christians who are wondering, can I find in God's word a blessing for someone who's living out the gay lifestyle? No, you can't. You have to change the Bible to make it say what you want it to say. You have to grab a pry bar and you have to lift up verses that have been nailed down for centuries and then you have to move them out of your way in order to walk forward with confidence. You have to change the Bible. Uh, some would also say, well, idolatry is clearly mentioned here in false worship. So again, it's the association of the homosexual activity with the idolatry. What we would say is, we already covered that, but they are talked about individually. So the idolatry is singled out and is condemned, but the homosexual activity is singled out and is condemned in and of itself, the very nature of what's being done. It doesn't say it's condemned because of the idolatry. It says it's condemned with the idolatry because it in itself is something that is condemned by God. So we looked at the Old Testament, we looked at the New, um, and I would just say if you're a Christian who has been confused, who has wondered, how can I see my gay friends, how can I find in Scripture affirmation for them, what should my church say and teach and think and believe about these things, uh, this is not a gray area in Scripture at all. Not at all. This is not confusing, it's not open at all to revision. Uh, if you go into God's word and give it an honest, plain reading of what the original audience heard, it is crystal clear. God is against homosexual behavior in all forms, and he will judge it. If you change that and tell somebody any other thing on behalf of God, you have to ask yourself why. Why would you do that? Now, the third question I'd like to ask is this. How do I deal with same-sex attraction then? And I, how do I deal with same-sex attraction based on what God's word says and what I find in my heart? How am I supposed to deal with this? You can turn to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, which is just one book to the right. Chapter 6, verse 9. Uh, what we find in 1 Corinthians, again by the author, the Apostle Paul, um, is a treatment of what needs to change in anybody's heart in order for us to be made right with God. So how do I deal with same-sex attraction? Well, the question can also be, how do I deal with any sin? And it says in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? All right, now, raise your hand if you think you're included in what the Bible calls as unrighteous. Raise your hand if you think you meet the criteria for being unrighteous. I see a few hands not up. <laughs> 
You have sinned in some way, shape, or form. Therefore, you fall under the category of unrighteous. So when the Bible says that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, that means the way we're born, we are not welcome in God's presence. That's the bad news. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Listen, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. I love this. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. We must leave our life of sin behind to inherit eternal life. Sin in all of its forms must be turned from and we have to turn to the risen Lord. Hey, I'm sure there are some people who will hear this message, you don't know about, you don't know Christ, you're not a Christian, and you don't like what you know. Let me just say this, Jesus Christ is the most loving person who's ever walked the earth. And he came into this world for you, and he died on the cross because of your sins. He came to open a way for you to get to heaven, because you can't get there without his help. So please, look past whatever you think about a political party or people on the TV or, or authors or people who have hurt you and just ask yourself what you truly believe about Jesus Christ. There's a woman by the name of Rosaria Butterfield who shared her testimony with Christianity Today a few years ago. It was the number one read article of the year. Let me read a little bit of it. The article says this, My train wreck conversion. She said, as a, les as a leftist lesbian professor, I despised Christians. Then I became one. She said, the word Jesus stuck in my throat like an elephant tusk. No matter how hard I choked, I couldn't hack it out. Stupid, pointless, menacing, that's what I thought of Christians and their God, Jesus. I was a professor of English and women's studies. She said she felt the need to speak out, to speak up for the LGBT community that she was a part of. So she started researching the religious right and their politic politics of hatred against queers. She said in 1997, she wrote to a local newspaper about a Promise Keepers rally that came to her city. The article generated many, uh, much mail that came to her. She said she sorted the mail in two boxes, hate mail and fan mail, hate mail and fan mail, and she kept it. Then she got a letter from a local pastor, and this pastor was very kind and simply questioned her where she gets her beliefs, how she defines right and wrong, and on what basis she applies that to other people aside from herself. And she said she didn't know which box to put it in. Because it wasn't hate mail and it wasn't fan mail. She said she threw it away and the next day she took it out of the trash and just let it sit on her desk for days. She eventually uh, accepted an invitation to meet this pastor for dinner, along with his wife, and they became friends. She said for two years... She interviewed this man and got to know him for her research, and she said she started reading the Bible. She said she devoured it. She read it again and again. She said she was really surprised and glad that these Christians did not act like conversations with her were polluting them. She felt like she could trust them. After reading her Bible several times, she was at a party once, and one of her lesbian friends came up to her, cornered her, put her hand over Rosaria's hand, and said, this Bible reading is changing you. Be careful. Rosaria said she started to tremor, and she whispered, what if it's true? 
What if Jesus is a real risen Lord? What if we are all in trouble? This woman said to her, I was a pastor for 15 years, Rosaria, and I prayed that God would heal me, but he never did. Rosaria said she continued reading her Bible. She said, I fought against it with all my might. Then one Sunday morning, I rose from the bed of my lesbian lover and an hour later sat in church. I fought with everything I had. I did not want this. I did not ask for this. But God's promises rolled in like sets of waves over my world. I wondered, who will God have me to be? Then one ordinary day, she says, I came to Jesus open-handed. I was a broken mess. Conversion was a train wreck. I did not want to lose everything that I loved. But the voice of God sang a song in the rubble of my world. I weakly believed that if, if Jesus could conquer death, he could make right my world. And I have not forgotten the blood Jesus surrendered for this life. Rosaria became a Christian. She had no reason to become a Christian. She didn't like Christians, but she read the Bible. She understood what God's truth said. Her life shows the confusion that's in the church because she recently came to Wheaton College to share her story and the Christian students protested her even coming to the school. Here's a picture of Wheaton College protesting Rosaria sharing her story. They didn't even want her story told in the college because they believe you can be gay and you can be a Christian and no one's going to tell us otherwise. This woman who was raised not in the church who got saved by reading the Bible and wanted to share her story, her voice was not even welcome there. This shows the confusion in the church over how to respond to this. What does the Bible say? Well, you can write this down. The Bible says of everyone, gay and straight, you must be washed. Rosaria saw that in the Bible. You must be washed. It describes our sins being washed away, washed off, and it only happens at the cross. Hey, listen, the guilt you feel from your past sins, perhaps even sexual sins that haunt you, can be crippling, and you can't wash it off. But Jesus can, and he must. You have to ask him to do it. Write this down. You also must be sanctified. The word sanctified is a beautiful word. Sanctified means you must be ceremonially set apart and prepared to be placed in God's awesome presence. You are not welcome in God's presence in your sin. No one is. I'm not. You must be sanctified. You must be ceremonially set apart and placed in God's presence. And only then are you authorized to serve Him. You must be sanctified. And then you must be justified. This is a legal word that means you must be declared righteous in God's court of law, fully forgiven of all of your sins. Only God can do that. This is the high call of Scripture to everyone, every man, every woman of every orientation. You might be asking yourself, is God really asking me to let go of something so central to my life and my happiness? Listen, God is really asking you to let go of everything central to your life and your happiness, all of it, to follow Jesus. Jesus says in the New Testament in Luke 14, 33, so therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Following Jesus always costs you everything. You have to turn from all of your fallen desires. And then what do you find? You find Jesus, and in him you find everything. Joe Dallas, I shared the beginning of his story with you at the beginning of the sermon, but how did it end? Six, seven years of a man with a seminary degree serving in a gay church. 
Well, one night, everything came crashing down. He sat watching the television and he saw one of his old friends who was a worship leader confessing that he had struggled with alcoholism and he had hit it and it had ruined his life. And he knew this man. And he was disarmed by the honesty. And his friend on television just issued a, a command or a challenge and said, if, my friends, if there's anything in your life that you're hiding, anything, just bring it into the light before, before you're, you make a nightmare of your life. And that phrase, nightmare of your life, is what did it. Joe said, the nightmare you could make of your life, the nightmare I have made of my life. He said, I was living a life without a clear conscience and a satisfied mind. He said, this became its own nightmare. The very nightmare my old friend was warning me about. That, in a nutshell, was what had haunted me for months. I simply wasn't sure. Simply not sure if I had ever been sure that I was right about God or my way of life. And those two things were the things that I had better be sure of. He said he stayed up, staring off into the distance, finally collapsed and said, wrong. Wrong when I stepped into that aisle and took communion as a gay Christian. Wrong when I'd encouraged others to do the same. Wrong when I'd spoken to college campuses as a proud gay Christian. Wrong. God help me. So wrong. When entering into relationship after relationship. I have no idea how much time had passed that evening while I went through this internal struggle. It was dark. It was quiet. The silence seemed to make it easier. He said, I've been wrong for years and there's nothing I can do to atone. Nothing I can do but face it and weep. So I did, sobbing bitterly into the early morning hours, then praying the only appropriate words, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, before finally slipping into the deepest, fullest sleep I'd enjoyed in years. Hey, I don't know your story. I don't know your background, but the offer of salvation is open to everyone. But you must leave your sins behind, all of them. I challenge you today to gladly, gladly walk away from the path the world has set before you. Joyfully leave it behind to a better path and to love Jesus with everything you have in you. You'll lose everything fallen and you'll gain everything glorious. Do it because Jesus left everything glorious to save you. He came down from heaven and left behind paradise. Everything that he enjoyed so that you can be saved. Jesus' love for you is like no love you will find anywhere else in this world. His love will never fail you. I want to challenge you to make Jesus the treasure of your heart and the conviction of your soul. And I promise you, you are not settling for less. You are gaining more love and more peace and more joy than this entire world can hold, and you will have it forever. I want to give you an invitation right now to ask Jesus to be your Savior, your Lord, your friend, your King forever. Let's pray.